Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. to Talking Tudors episode 150. I'm your host Natalie Gruniger and I'm so happy that you could join me. Today's episode of Talking Tudors is sponsored by Royalty Now. Have you ever wondered what people from the past really looked like? What about what they would look like today as modern day people? Royalty Now creates lifelike versions of past portraits and statues, including your favourite Tudors, by combining historical sources and artistic expression. Check out the YouTube channel Royalty Now Studios, where they dive into the history of each figure and then reveal the recreations. Recent popular videos explore what Anne Boleyn really looked like, including a recreation from the famous Holbein sketch, as well as comparisons to the Most Happy Portrait Medal. There is also an episode on Catherine of Aragon, with lifelike versions of Catherine created from several portraits throughout her life. You can also find Becca on Instagram at royalty underscore now underscore, where she posts a new figure every two weeks. I'd also like to take this opportunity to thank and acknowledge the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patron and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and never miss an episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com or click on the Be A Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. March's prize is a copy of The Carnival of Ash by John Beckerleck. Thank you to Rebellion Publishing for sponsoring this wonderful prize. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors live talks which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. At the end of the month, I'll be chatting to Dr. Owen Emerson about a new exhibition opening at Hever Castle entitled Becoming Anne, Connections Culture Court. Please get in touch with me if you'd like to register for this event. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. I would love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag #ILoveTalkingTudors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to talk about the Tower of London is Alfred Hawkins. Alfred has, since 2018, been an assistant curator of historic buildings for Historic Royal Palaces, the charity that manages the Tower of London, 
Hampton Court Palace, Kensington Palace, Kew Palace, The Banqueting House, and Hillsborough Castle and Gardens. In this role, based at the Tower of London and Banqueting House, Alfred helps to preserve, protect, and share the stories of the buildings and archaeological deposits across the Royal Palace. Our conversation is coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles. Welcome to Talking Tudors, Alfred. How are you? I'm fantastic, thanks. How are you? I'm doing pretty well, thank you. How about we begin with you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about your background. Uh, yep, so I'm, I'm Alfred Hawkins and I'm Assistant Curator for Historic Buildings at Tower of London and Banqueting House Whitehall. By training, I'm a building archaeologist and my background is ma- mainly just working in commercial archaeology. Awesome. And we're going to chat about the Tower of London today, which is very exciting. So I thought we could start with you just maybe just telling us just a bit about the history of the tower. Yeah. So, um, well, I mean, there's a thousand years of history, so it's, uh, it's difficult to summarise in a few sentences. But um, yeah, the Tower of London is William the Conqueror's fortress in London, built in two phases from 1078 to 1100, and is then the home of various uh, national institutions and um, kind of board ornaments and the crown jewels, obviously, for a long period of time, um, and is is expanded by successive monarchs, mostly by Henry III, Edward I. Um, and yeah, it's one of the oldest continually occupied for, uh, fortresses in the world. It is, and I'm sure many of our listeners have heard of it at least, or, or perhaps even visited. Um, and I know that throughout its history, its very long history, it's had many different functions. Can you tell us about some of these? Yeah, so I mean, the towers basically, as a royal palace, it was um, fairly out of fashion by the time it was um, completed. It was very rarely ever used as a kind of royal palace, but it is because it was so secure. It's been very convenient storage place for the crown jewels a fantastic location to have a garrison if you're trying to control the city of london and it also housed the menagerie which is um, basically a zoo holding animals that would have been gifted to various monarchs um, which formed the basis for the london zoological society the royal mint importantly and 
the Board of Ordnance and the kind of foundation of the National Archives through various record stores in different towns. Yeah, quite a variety. And and obviously it stood sentinel over the City of London for so long. So what are some of the, the major events that have, have occurred there? It really depends on what you would class as major. Because obviously some people would say um, the executions of various uh, notable people that we're going to get into later make are incredibly important, but also in terms of the kind of institutional development of England, even even the movement of the mint from uh, Shermanning's Sher- Lane near what is now St Paul's Cathedral into the tower is a very significant part of the monetary history of England. And the crown jewels being destroyed at the end of the English Civil War. Um, and then even, even later in its history, you've got different things such as World War I regiments, um, mostly Coldstream Guards being trained within the moat after it was drained. Um, before they went off to the Western Front, and even Rudolf Hess being in prison there in 1942. So there's almost something during every period that is, I would argue, nationally important. It just it depends on how interested you are in those particular events as to um, what what you would classify as a major event. Yeah, and, and obviously there, it's seen many challenging times throughout history. Have the defences, though, ever been breached? The Tower of London has been attacked a few times, um, I think, possibly in 1191, 1214, 1267, 1381, 1460, and partially in 1471. But in terms of the defence being breached, the, the, the kind of big one that we think of is the um, Peasants' Revolt in 1381, which is, is slightly an awkward one because they, they weren't so much breached as they were just let in. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> And obviously that, that wasn't a, um, a siege in the traditional sense that you would think of with um, siege engines and caps of armies. It was, it was a, mob, a mob of peasants who um, were let in, stole a load of stuff um, and then executed a bishop on to, I hope I can't remember exactly which bishop it was. But no, um, it's been, it's changed hands a few times, mostly through, I mean, as and most sieges end in surrender. It's very, it's very rare that you actually have these kind of dramatic battles where the defences are breached, at least in England, because we have our history is characterized by long periods of relative peace uh, punctuated with incredibly bloody periods. But because of the tower's location, it's it's never really it's, it's never had any kind of major breach that we would we would recognise. Now, of course, this podcast is talking Tudor, so we do focus on the Tudor period. So let's kind of look at this um, this period for a moment. Can you tell us a little bit about what the Tower Complex was actually like during the 16th century? I know there's been some, obviously, some changes after that. Yes. So um, after the, the Tudor period is probably the, the Tower of London at its kind of zenith as an institutional home. So it's, it's still acting as a royal palace. And um, if... If any kind of listeners want to to this image of the tower, the best thing to Google would be the Hayward and Gascoigne plan of uh, 1597, which is um, shows is is kind of the oldest cartographic source we have of the Tower of London, and is is incredibly detailed. We know there are a few things which don't quite match up with the archaeological record that shows what the tower is used for. So going from the centre outwards, you obviously have the White Tower, and then to the south, you have the Queen's Apartments, the Great Hall, and the King's Apartments. Um, and then in the, what we would now call the Inner Ward, 
um, is the Chapel of St. Peter at Vincula, various storehouses for the Board of Ordnance and kind of mostly residential accommodation. And then in the outer ward is, um, which was built by Edward I, is the Royal Mint and again, st storehouses and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so it is, it's basically fulfilling all of its functions at the same time during the 16th century. It's not quite declined as a royal palace to the point where it's used because obviously Anne Boleyn and we stayed there before Anne's combination and it receives massive, massive overhaul in 1532 under James Needham to be kind of ready for that process. But it's also still seen as, as a convenient storehouse more than anything. And you mentioned a few buildings there that I'd love to chat to you about. So one of them was, of course, the Queen's Apartments, which, as you said, is where Anne stayed prior to her coronation. And then tragically, it's where she stayed during her imprisonment as well. So what do we know about this doesn't exist? Sadly, I, I, you know, when I visit, I kind of stand there just wishing that I could see it, but it's not there anymore. What do we know of this building? Yes, it's, it's, it's very disappointing that that kind of whole complex of buildings are lost because, as, as I've said, the, the White Tower isn't really used as a royal palace, but the, um, what we now call the Seth Lawn was. And um, the loss of the, um, the great medieval hall and all of those apartments is deeply disappointing, particularly as um, all of, all, well, almost all of the archaeology in that area has also been destroyed by kind of subsequent buildings. Um, mostly for the main guard, which was a, a garrison building. But no, so the, um, the the Queen's apartments were, we've got a few um, descriptions of them, mostly from that 1532 scheme of works um, and Hayward plan. So it's probably a um, timber-framed building with brick nogging, which is, um, for anybody who doesn't know random architectural terms, is where brick is kind of inlaid in between the frame so that you can still see the timber frame, which is very kind of typical Tudor aesthetic. But yeah, um, as far as the inside goes, I certainly haven't seen any definitive descriptions of the interiors of the Queen's house, of the Queen's apartments rather. But if you would like to see what the Great Hall looked like, which was obviously where Ablett was um, at her trial, the kind of closest, the closest survival to that is the, um, the Great Hall in Winchester, which is an absolutely fantastic building. But no, so I mean, that's, that's largely all we know. I mean, we can we can speculate what they would look like inside because it's it's a Tudor building of incredibly high status, so it's probably got decorative features similar to the, those that we could see at Hampton Court and Hever Castle before it was um, violated by um, Aston. So yeah, it's it, it's an, it's an interesting one, and that plan kind of is is really one of the only things that we have that allow you to kind of visual, visualize the tower as a one which is it's incredibly useful but no it's, it's a massive shame that they're not yeah, there anymore I know. I, oh gosh what I'd give to just have a little look at that and, and you're right I've been to the other the great hall you mentioned and and that's amazing to stand there and, and even just when you speak and the echoing and you can just picture what must have been happening you know in the one at the tower during their trial must have been absolutely incredible. So of course, Anne is one of the most famous prisoners of the tower. Tell us about some of the other kind of prominent prisoners. Well, it kind of, it, again, depends what you think on in prominent. Usually the, the kind of the core list is um, John uh, St. John Fisher, St. Thomas More, Anne Boleyn, Catherine Howard, Jane Grey, Dudley and Elizabeth I. But even, even right through to the um, 
to the modern period, you have the Cray twins being held in the unwaterly block and have actually stood in, in the cells, which are now, now housed water tanks, which is um, interesting. But no, so I mean, um, John Fisher is obviously Bishop of Rochester um, and not particularly supportive of um, Henry VIII's decision to split from, from Rome um, and is, is subsequently executed, um, to much more largely the same story. Everyone knows the story of Anne Boleyn. Anne Boleyn and Lady Jane Grey are probably the two saddest um, stories of executions of, the tower, of people who we can actually name and know about their story. Anne Boleyn, obviously, because it is, it is the site of her a crowning achievement, literally, and probably the happiest point in her life, and also the saddest point in her life. Um, and Lady Jane, Jane Grey, obviously, because she was um, caught up in things <laughs> to an extent. And uh, if you if you believe some of the accounts, witnessed her husband being pulled past her apartment in a cart after being executed. So yeah, there, there are lots of people, but it's not in, in terms of kind of the, the social history of England and, and the Tower's importance. It's I think we do sometimes focus too much on on those kind of big ticket names because the tower is also an incredibly important prison throughout the medieval period for Jewish people who, which my my colleague um, Rory has just published on for free a huge database of I think it's I think it's over two hundred individual um, kind of accounts of different Jewish people who are imprisoned at the tower and why they were prisoned there. So it's 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 always used as a prison because it's incredibly secure, but sometimes I think it's worth, it's worth stepping back from the great, the good, the traitorous, and the victims, and seeing how the tower is used as a kind of a more large scale prison, which has a slightly larger impact on on kind of the social fabric of Britain. Yeah. So in terms of, of its function as a prison. When did that begin? So was it operating as the, the palace and the prison kind of side by side at the same time? Um, yes, I, I, I can't remember his name, but the, I think the first record we have of somebody being held prisoner is in 1100. And right. my colleagues are going to never forgive me for forgetting his name because I should have that uh, off the top of my head. Um, so that's that's largely when we know the town was completed because there's there are no records saying the town is not finished. It's, we know it was started in 1078 and lasted for, um, that building first lasted for about 10 years and then there was a small break and then another building phase started. We can see that very clearly in the, in the fabric of the White Tower through different mortar types and um, construction techniques. But we assume having this prisoner in 1100 means the tower is largely finished because it is then secure. And then, yeah, it, it, again, the, ta- the tower story as, as fantastic as it is, is a story of convenience. It is a colossal structure in London that is incredibly secure. And so if you have some people who you don't really like or don't want them to be roaming around free, you can keep them there. And it's, it's, also, it's, it's also important to mention that it's, it's not a prison in for the great and the good. This isn't a prison in the same way as you think of a normal prison in the medieval period. It's, it's actually quite luxurious. The, the buildings are made of stone. They are colossal. They are relatively easy to keep. There's lots of um, lots of documents of different prisoners bringing in um, servants and books and Walter Riley having a garden where he would um, he would make his um, incredibly poisonous concoctions as a kind of health drinks and medicine various other things. But um, it has op- operated as a prison alongside being alongside being 
and, and all of the other different things that it has because it is convenient to do so. Ah, so fascinating. And in terms of the executions, obviously some people we know were executed within the Tower Complex, then lots of other people on Tower Hill. Do we have any kind of numbers for those executions roughly in its history? Uh, yeah, the, num- the numbers are difficult. So the, the ones, the kind of, again, the big ticket people who are executed inside the Tower. And um, I think it's probably important to explain a little bit of context here. So the um, obviously executing people is is not... It's, it's, it's something that you do in order to project authority and to show this person, to show somebody as an example, effectively. It is, it is obviously the absolute end of disciplinary means. So executing someone behind closed doors doesn't really achieve what its purpose is. So as you say, the majority of the executions that occurred at the quote-unquote tower actually happened on Tower Hill, which is um, across a lovely road in a um, memorial what is now a memorial garden so that is i mean that's important to remember because obviously you would have the view of the tower in the background as a colossal example of royal power and you would also you would see these people executed and it would be it would be the day out the thing the thing oh we're going to watch an execution today it's kind of like a game of football but a horribly grotesque one so ex- executions inside the tower are reserved for people who are of such significance that they are kind of they're given a modicum of respect which sounds sounds weird in you're having your head cut off however you're being executed in a respectful way but it, it is because it means it means that you don't have to deal with kind of the baying crowds and screaming and having things thrown at you and people trying to steal bits of your body for kind of trinkets and dipping handkerchiefs in your blood as you see in the kind of in the terror in France. Um, so in terms of the actual people, um, you've got William Hastings, who is the first Hastings, uh, the Duke of Gloucester, uh, Queen Anne Boleyn, Margaret Countess of Salisbury, Queen Catherine Howard, Jane Boleyn, Lady Jane Grey, Lord Dudley, and Robert Devereux, I think off the top of my head, are the kind of big people who are executed inside the town. And we have we have got a memorial in what we call the execution site of the town, which is a, a glass sculpture, which I will, I will reserve um, judgment on. Obviously within a medieval, medieval fortress doesn't quite work, um, but that isn't actually located where the execution site would have been. Um, it's more likely and show that the um, execution site was actually towards the north of the White Tower, um, outside the main entrance for the Waterloo Park, which is where the crown jewels, jewels are held. The problem with that is it is, that area is called the parade ground because it is a parade ground. So, so we, we often have um, various regiments visiting and still um, have lots of different ceremonies of state that occur. So that, that space is needed for people to march across. And if you plunk a great big memorial in the middle of it, that wouldn't be particularly useful. So after all of those great and good, um, we also have a number of uh, German prison prisoners of war who are executed in the 20th century, which is something that um, quite a few people forget is the tower is doesn't doesn't seem to be a um, a place of execution um, at the start of the 17th century it actually carries on throughout. So in terms of numbers, I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if it if there were more than we know about because obviously military executions would just occur um, and they're not always incredibly well documented, um, particularly in the distant past. But I would I would be surprised if it's more than thirty or forty people 
if you're honest, because it's if you're if you're going to execute someone, it may it, unless they are incredibly significant and you want to give them that vodka of respect, it doesn't make any sense to do so behind closed, closed doors. And I imagine that our listeners, when they think about the tower, apart from thinking obviously about executions and that kind of thing, immediately also think of the wonderful bee feeders that are there and probably have taken a photo with them as well. And the ravens, of course. So I want to talk about these two aspects of the tower. So maybe let's start with the the waters or the bee feeders. When were they introduced to the tower? Well, that is that is a subject of some controversy. It depends. The date largely depends on which yeoman warder you ask, um, because there, there are lots of... Um, there are lots of records of different bodies of men um, guarding the tower before the kind of the formal 1485 founding of the Yeomen's So, um, but yeah, so the, the, the general answer is um, that the Yeoman Warders were originally part of the Yeoman of the Guards, which is the monarch's personal bodyguard. And then in 1485, this body is kind of split in order to... Um, to provide a small garrison to protect the tower while maintaining that personal bodyguard. So these Yemen warders are granted the right to wear their lovely red uniform, which I am told that is incredibly uncomfortable. Um, yeah, so that's kind of that's the date, um, 1485, that we usually go for, although it will, don't um, hang me for that, because it will change depending on who you ask. But the um, the Yemen warders are, are interesting. So originally, obviously, it was a... a bodyguard team in order to defend the tower and then they kind of become the jailers of the fortress and there are, there are lots of um, lots of different records of prisoners being lodged with yeomen which sounds incredibly weird but it's it makes it makes a lot of sense because the tower is a very large space and if you're trying to keep somebody in one place and you have a body of men who are there to protect the tower that would make complete sense but it moved from being that kind of bodyguard to being a position that was bought um so you would you would buy position um and that kind of carried on as a more of a status symbol than anything else until the duke of wellington became constable in 1826 and along with a whole host of incredibly sensible things that he did including draining the moat which was more of a cesspit than anything else um he ended the practice of purchasing a a kind of a yeoman watership, if you can call that, um, and then started using ex-military personnel. So the yeoman warders today all have to have um, 22 years military service. Um, they all have to have reached rank or an officer, and they all have to have the long service and good conduct medals. And they're also um, all, I believe, all sworn in as part of the yeoman guard as well. So they are technically part of both bodies. But um, in terms of in terms of day to day, they they are members of the security team, and they open up and lock up. But obviously, their most iconic job is to um, give their tours, which um, are more or less funny, depending on which yeoman you have, because some of them love dad jokes, and some of them are yeah. No, I mean it's it's, de- it's definitely an experience, um, and I would I would recommend going on those tours and bothering them for selfies because they may complain, but they do actually love it. Uh, they're a lot of fun. I, I am enjoyed the one I went on. It was, yeah, very boisterous man I had that time, <laughs> but it was fun. That, and what sounds, about, that what are, sounds familiar. Yeah, that sounds familiar. And what about the the ravens? What's the story with the ravens? Yeah, the, the ravens are an interesting one as well. Um, so first of all, seeing as a lot of people listen to your podcast, actually, I would like to express a, a plea to all listeners. Please stop stroking the ravens because they are scavenger birds. 
And the amount of times I've seen people allow small children to pet a very large bird and is then subsequently bitten or swiped or something like that. And it's just, please stop doing that. Um, But yes, that's a small tangent. But um, (laughs) so the the ravens, uh, the kind of the big myth is the kingdom and the Tower of London will, or I think it's the Tower of London will crumble into dust and the monarchy will fall if the six resident ravens ever leave the fortress. And obviously we don't believe in anything as ridiculous and suspicious as that. So we have two or three spares, just in case. Just in case. <laughs> um, but it's um, the kind of, the myth is that it was um, it was Charles II who was the first kind of monarch to insist that the ravens be be kept at the time. And a funny, funny story is this, this was given against the um, explicit wish, wishes of the King's um, astronomer John Flamsteed, who had made a um, the, the Flamsteed Tower, which is the um, the only circular turret on the White Tower, the one with the incredibly long staircase that um, you will enjoy if you visit the White Tower, had made a observation base at the, at the top of that tower, and the ravens notoriously fiddled with his equipment and um, defecated on various other things. So he he fairly swiftly moved over to um, um, Greenwich. <laughs> where the um the royal observatory was built but it's possible it's possible that the ravens played some small part to make making i love it thank you for that and you you mentioned earlier the moat and i recently scrolling through twitter saw a video of you talking about some things that were going on in the moat and i think you've been working with some mudlarkers and sifting through the soil so what have you found any treasures oh yes um well again a, a small caveat is um the tower of london is a scheduled monument and there are various other scheduled monuments in the country. So if if you would like to metal detect anywhere, please check what site you're doing it on. And um, if if you don't have explicit permission to do it, just don't. Because <laughs> it, uh, you can be fined quite a lot or um, go to prison for, for breaking the law for doing it. So yes, so the, 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 the work we've been doing in the moat is part of the... Uh, construction phase for Superbloom, which is a um, this kind of large-scale transformation of the moat into a kind of a green space, um, which has been described as fireworks of changing flowers over over the years. So all um, we're making various changes, including adding ductwork, um, kind of mains, electrics, um, irrigation, all that kind of thing, alongside bringing in. I think we're at three thousand square meters of soil at the moment. Um, to change the topography of the moat and then on top of that a a massive path system so that you can actually walk around it which will be fantastic but obviously with that huge project um, being done for the queen's jubilee we have to keep in mind that the tower is a scheduled monument it's a world heritage site a lot of the buildings are individually listed and its archaeological potential is absolutely vast it is is one of the most archaeologically important sites in the city of london Um, and the moat is kind of the one of the more important areas because it was when it was a moat for 700 years it was a very convenient dump so people both inside the fortress and outside would just throw things in it, which means that it's full of wonderful little items that you don't necessarily find elsewhere. Um, so because of that kind of sensitivity and because of the timescale that we had, um, I thought it'd be a great idea to get the um, Thames Mudlark Society in. And they, I worked with a, a fantastic um, guy called um, Stuart Wyatt, who is the um, kind of finds liaison officer at Museum of London. 
So he's got very good connections with the Mudlarks, and whenever they find anything important, he will accession it onto the Portable Antiquities Scheme. Or he spoke with the Mudlarks, and they're all very excited. And they they came in and sifted through our spoil, and um, I think they came for three days, or that we might have them in again soon, depending on what we're doing. But in terms of the actual finds they made, it's is absolutely remarkable. There's everything that you could possibly think of. And kind of going back to what I was saying about the kind of institutional use of the tower, we found coins that were um, from the Elizabethan period, which were almost and and the 17th century, which almost certainly minted at the tower. Uh, there are cannonballs, which if if you're slightly more fanciful of thought, might have been fired at the tower, although it's more likely that they've just come from demolished buildings within the town as part of the process of filling up the moat. A beautiful 15th century French jetton, which is a, a kind of a counter, um, although it looks like one, which is incredibly well preserved. Tudor, a Tudor buckle, a dagger belt. I think it's actually two Tudor buckles now. Yeah, I mean, it's sorry, I'm, I'm just going for a tangent, but it's... No, all good. <laughs> And anything that you can think of that has happened at the tower, we have some small record of that in the moat. So there are animal bones from the menagerie, coins from the Tower of London Mint, cannibals from Woodlands. Yeah, it's, 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 it's absolutely fantastic. And I think it's, it's just under 200 artefacts that we have uh-huh. managed to save now. So it's a very, very valuable experience. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to um, write a blog the kind of varied list of things that we've found so that will be on the hrp website at some point in the future yeah that sounds really good and of course alfred i cannot let you go without asking about another aspect of the tower's reputation and that is of course it's haunted reputation you know reputed to be one of the most haunted places in in england in the world have you ever had any kind of eerie experiences there as a great disappointment to your (laughs) listeners the, the short answer to that is no. Um, Boo. I, I, I know that I, I have to have to remember that I'm I'm an archaeologist at heart, and um, I know very few archaeologists who believe in ghosts because a lot of a lot of their job is um, digging up graveyards. So yes, um, the ghosts is are, are an interesting aspect aspect of the town. Obviously, a lot of people, for better or worse, have interesting connections to various stories of the town, which are not right or wrong or um, and differ according to different people so sometimes obviously you can be incredibly emotional when you're at the tower and yeah. then you might see somebody who is actually living in one of the buildings just dart past their window and you're like oh my god that's good <laughs> and just because i haven't experienced it doesn't mean that nobody else has there are some very fantastic stories actually my colleague uh, dr Alden gregory wrote fantastic uh, kind of piece for Inside Story members kind of magazine about, I think it was mostly about the kind of 18th and 19th century kind of romantic ghost stories. And my, fav- my favourite one of those that he talked about was the, the ghost of the polar bear, that if you see the polar bear, you die. Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> as this kind of myth of, <laughs> of our ghosts. And there's, there's also obviously Amblin and um, various other individuals. The thing I think about in terms of ghosts is if you were a ghost, why on earth would you loiter around the place where you had your head cut off? It seems it seems very boring. And if I were a ghost, I would like to think that I just st- stroll around looking at stuff because I suppose all you have is time. And you can't you can't go on that many yeoman water tours. So no, I've I no, I've I've never had any kind of spiritual well, that's that's like I've I've had emotional moments at the tower yeah. because it is an emotional place and it is fantastic and the density of history there is 
absolutely maddening, um, particularly when it's your job to know about things. No one could know the history of the entire fortress, but other people have, and some of them are more or less fanciful than others. Well, there's, my there's still time. There's still time. Something could occur. You never know. This could spark something. something could, so, I mean, had, let me know. Um, in 2019, we ex- we excavated um, two skeletons from outside the chapel, and um, so they date they dated between 1450 and 1550. And part of part of the law of excavating human remains is they need to be secured and stored somewhere secure. Um, and when they were returned from the archaeological unit, our resident um, chaplain was on um, I think he was in Ethiopia actually doing some missionary work but in in any case it, it, we couldn't inter the remains straight away so they were kept in my office and I, I had um, lots of people kind of coming in and going aren't you scared of a ghost and I was like yep yeah, if you were a ghost why would you hang around your kind of mortal remains just slowly rotting away in the ground there's um, some people get slightly carried away with it I can understand when you're in the tower. I can understand. Um, (laughs) And the very last thing that we do is what I call 10 to go. So 10 questions just to get to know you a little bit better. So number one, what was the last book that you read that you can remember? Uh, It is. So this is going to be incredibly boring. I'm writing writing an article on um, the legal history of Chapel of St. Peter at Vincula because it's very confusing and kind of flits between being more peculiar and not um so the last book i read was the report of the review group of on the war peculiars which was published in 2001 okay so, well <laughs> sorry, not, not a particularly popular book i can confidently say that no choose. one else has um, mentioned that book before <laughs> in all the interviews um and i know you know you guys we're, we're still in our summer nice hot weather but you're not um, what's what's your favorite sort of comfort food definitely pizza Pizza. Which is it's probably good. slightly a basic answer for an assistant curator of a royal fortress. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. good. Yeah. That's good. Um, and do you remember what was one of your favourite childhood toys? Ooh, oh, how embarrassing do I want this to be? Be honest. Uh, well, I, I had a very strange obsession. Have you ever heard of the Biker Mice from Mars? No, I haven't. It's... <laughs> So I, I was born in 1994, so it's, okay. it's, it was a very, very strange kind of 90s cartoon of these mice. mice who are the size of humans oh. and uh, uh, ride around on motorbikes, um, kind of fighting this fish guy who is kind of, I think the kind of general just is he's stolen all of the resources, resources from Mars and is trying to do the same on Earth and these bike mice attempt to stop that. I think it's actually been revamped recently, but um, I had lots of little plastic motorbikes and mice cute i can't believe i've just said that we'll all have to google that now just to see these um these huge motorbike mice i love it i wasn't expecting that (laughs) i should i should have thought of a lie good i like that um so what's a new skill that you would like to learn professionally or personally i don't know am i allowed two answers yeah yeah that's fine I would quite like to get better at so petrology is the identification of different stem types and um where they came from and we do a lot of petrological work at the tower and it would be nice if i was slightly better at that it is unfortunately an incredibly niche subject um but personally i would like to be better at drawing i think i'm a building recorder by training so i can do very good survey drawings but i i'm not particularly creative so it would be it'd be nice to get better at that fantastic all right and what is a favorite holiday destination I'm quite boring, I think. No, you're not. You like those mice, the, I, the motorbike mice. <laughs> oh, God, I'm never going to live that down. 
If I just hide in my room for the next month, um, I hope that no one at the town listens to this. No, I I, I quite like the English countryside and um, I, I, walking up Iron Age hill forts. So I also really don't like being very warm. So I can't say, oh, I'd love to go to Greece or Spain or something because I would literally melt. So yeah, kind of long long walks in in the countryside, getting very wet when it decides to pour down and with rain is probably probably ideal getaway. No, it sounds lovely to me. And and what about the last film um, or even series, film or series that you watched? I think that's probably got to be the latest season or series rather of The Witcher okay, on yep. Netflix. Not as good as the books, but everyone loves Henry Cavill. So, yes, yeah. I know. I, I love Henry Cavill too, but I, I actually didn't get into that one. I watched like one or two episodes and I was like, no, sorry, Henry. No, it's, it's a weird one. I think that yeah, because it's a very popular game. And oh, right. yep. there are fans of Henry Cavill and then there are fans of the book. I think that they're, they're trying to do, to please too many different yes. groups who have wildly different expectations and they're kind of not succeeding in any of them. Yeah. All right. Favourite genre of music? Probably just rock, I would imagine. But kind of, yeah, I kind of grew up with kind of 80s rock. So what do you do to relax and unwind um, after, say, after a long day at work? People relax. Um, uh, I don't know. Not um, me that go, much, but I've heard they do. Um, I go. I try to go to the gym yeah. um, fairly, fairly regularly. Just mostly that, and kind of. I, I, I love visit. Again, I work at a heritage site, and my favourite thing to do is go and visit other random heritage sites. So it's. It sometimes feels like work, but it's it's, it's quite relaxing, and I, I'm always always up for going and visiting a cathedral. So. And what is a mystery, historical or otherwise, I guess, that you would love to know the answer to? There are lots of questions about the tunnel that I would want to know just because it would make my life easier. I can't, I can't think of any, well, actually, yes, I can. It would be where on earth the first chapel of St. Peter, I think, you know, was. Because um, it's, it's the building I've done the most work on at the town. And we know there was probably a chapel there in the ninth century, and then it was demolished and rebuilt and demolished and rebuilt until we got we get to the Tudor building that we have at the town today. But I would love to know where that chapel was and what form it was, because then it would just it just complete the story for me. So, yeah, again, relatively nice. niche. Okay, great. And lucky last, what is something that you're looking forward to in the next, say, 12 months? Probably the opening of Superbloom, because um, we are, we're, we're currently at a stage where it looks... I mean, you can, we're starting to build features of it, and it, it, will, it will look beautiful, but it does have an essence of the song about it at the moment with mounds of dirt it would be nice it would be nice to see that project completed and to get people into the moat because that's the only place where you can kind of actually experience how big it is and how colossal the walls of the town actually are and it's it's massive green space in London that we don't use so having having extra flowers there will be great for pollinators and various other things so yeah that's that's the kind of big things to look forward to next year fantastic i remember seeing some pictures of the the moat during world war ii when it was like a victory garden that was really cool actually so yeah yeah no it's got it has got a fantastic history and um there was a um silver jubilee image of um it having lots of tulips in there which was was we will this will dwarf anything probably it, it probably won't be quite as popular as the poppies but it will it will certainly in terms of logistics and um, the scale of what we're doing it is it's the largest change to the moat since 1845 when it was drained lots of work but it will it will pay off in the end 
Yeah, fantastic. And the very last thing that I ask my guests is for a Tudor takeaway. So this is something for our listeners to go off and explore after the episode. So do you have a Tudor takeaway for us? Actually, I was, I was actually this is the question I've been agonizing most <laughs> uh, since you since you sent all these questions through because I am I'm relatively good on the history of the tower as you would as you would expect because it's a job. But I, I wouldn't classify myself as a Tudor historian. I work with many fantastic Tudor historians. I mean, Tracy Borman, um, Dr. Alden Gregory, um, Lucy I, does various Tudor bits. Bobs, and that I think my Tudor takeaway would be to read some of my fantastic colleagues' work on the HRP blogs website, which might, might be slightly boring, but um, not boring necessarily, but slightly basic a, um, a suggestion because I've listened to some of the other podcasts. <laughs> And they all have different source lists and things like that. But um, yeah, I, I'm s- surrounded by people more intelligent and capable than myself. And I think that they their work is all, is all, all amazing. So read, read their work. <laughs> read their work, not yours. Okay. Um, we'll check out the there blog. There are a few of, my, few of my blogs on there, but they are. Um, oh, good. Yeah, no, that, yeah, that's good. I'll put the link. I'll put the link to the blog. And and actually, when you um, get around to doing your article on the, the finds from the moat, let me know and I can pop that on as well, pop that link. That'd yeah, be really cool. More than happy to. <laughs> Alfred, thank you so much for joining us on the show and talking tutors with us. Thank you for having me. It's been great fun. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Mm-hmm.